Last week, we covered Philippians 2, 12 to 18, and tonight I think we're going to maybe actually finish Philippians 2, 12 to 18. I, I, uh, I got stuck there. I could, again, we talked about that, salvation. How, how long can you talk on salvation? Like months per book. It's like, it's a book of salvation, and, uh, and it's fun. I'd rather talk about that than some things, but what was he trying to convey to the Philippians during this time? And uh, just to have a baseline, again, putting it down. And uh, before we start, food for thought. Hopefully this will come through. Um, talking a little bit more about salvation. I, I had my notes from last week. I didn't cover everything. I didn't have time. I went long as it was. And then I said, I got to get my notes and whittle it down because I try to do that. I always come up with a lot of information. I whittle it down, and then I'm not short. And then if I have things, Sunday school does that to you. You don't want to run out of stuff to say in Sunday school because they'll go nuts. <laughs> or they already were. But anyways, <laughs> you want to have more for them. So you're better off having too much than too little. So I still had like half of my message left to whittle down to make it manageable. And as of last night, it was bigger than it was. I'm like, <sighs> so... I think the, the, the point I want to get to finish with is what Paul was trying to convey to the Philippians, but to have this baseline down I think is extremely important. There's a lot of things we can disagree upon. There's not everything that people that I look up to, people that I truly respect their knowledge of the Bible, don't always agree. There's things that are debatable, and it's okay. I don't agree with everything or understand completely how some things are taught here. But salvation, there's certain things that cannot be, fundamentals are fundamentals, and they must be grounded in sound. And salvation, to me, is a, a sound principle, right? We, there is one God who Jesus is, is extremely important. Um, and salvation is another one. So I'll get to the point I want to make before I start, so in case I don't get there, then I, there, I did it. I'll do it in the beginning. Um, the meaning of life. Who hasn't pondered, who hasn't thought about that, anyone that's ever been alive and actually had a conscience and a brain. So as Christians, do we know what the meaning of life is? Is there a purpose? Yeah, there's multiple correct answers, um, right? I'm here to, to please God. I'm here to worship him. I'm here, actually, if you look, if you think about it, what, what is life? So we think, a lot of times when you talk about life, you think about this time here on earth. And sometimes when you're here, things don't make sense. A, a place I go to often, especially to unbelievers, trying to make sense of this, is if you were to draw your life on a timeline from the moment that you were created till the time you die, and then continue it through all of eternity, where is most of your time on that timeline? It's not here. He didn't create us for our time here. Our time here determines where we're going to spend all of eternity and how we're going to spend it. And eternity is, is either a long time or the absence of time. Right? Rob talked about that today. In the beginning was the word. The beginning of what? Time, space, and matter. He was before all of that. I think there's going to be an end to that. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't have to. All he says is, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Believe it. You'll, all the rest will come true. Nothing he's ever said has been wrong. And I might not know the full meaning of why I'm here. It might will become clear when I look at him and see him in his face, face to face. But 
I do have purpose, and that we can know. What is my purpose while I'm here? And I think that's the thing that needs to be, the Philippians needed encouragement, and sometimes you go through things and you're wondering, am I doing it wrong? Have I even started? Is God mad at me? Things seem hard. And do I have a purpose, and am I fulfilling it? And sometimes it seems like we think we have to convince God that either I can do something, I'm willing to do something, or that maybe I shouldn't be doing anything. And sometimes it seems like the way things are coming at me, it's because I failed. And we know that that was not the case for the Philippians. He was trying to encourage them, not correct them. And he's, he's trying to talk them through that by remembering and thinking. So why am I here? So to start out, one question that's often asked, especially at pastor's conferences, because a lot of times pastors are there and not all, all the pastors that are there are in full-time ministry or work at a church. I don't work at a church. So especially Gerald Irwin used to come up and say, how many people at this place are in full-time ministry? If I was to ask you, how many of you are in full-time ministry? And then, yeah, by the, by the end, everyone's raising their hand. <laughs> Do you have a ministry? And when are you supposed to be doing that? Sometimes. We all have a calling in life. We all have a purpose in life. We're all here for a reason, and it's our quest to find out what that is. And hopefully we'll see that it's not as hard as we can make it out to be um, as we go through this. So that's the, the goal, I think. So, Father, I just pray that you would come to us. You would be a good dad. Lord, we know we can ask that because it is according to your will. You cannot be a bad dad. So we just pray that you would comfort us, come to us, encourage those that might be uh, feeling lost or confused uh, why we're here, what we're doing, uh, if we have a purpose. And uh, just pray that you would be speaking to us and uh, guiding what we do. Lord, we can, you told us yourself that we can do nothing without you, Lord, but through you we can do all things. So we just pray that you would be true to that, that we would be willing participant in that and that you would show us what it is that you're going to do and how we play a part in that, Lord. We understand that we have a will and we have responsibility, but you are also sovereign. And just show us what that means while we're sitting here for today and then continue to show us that when we leave tonight and then tomorrow morning when we wake up, Lord, we just want to walk with you. And we want that because that's what you want and you told us that, Lord. We did not so high thinking of ourselves that uh, you need something and you want us to be there for you, Lord, but you just love us and want to be with us and we need you there for us, Lord. So uh, anything that's causing us to be separated from you, we pray that you would remove that. Help us to think correctly, to repent of our, our pride, thinking that we blew it and something that we did is greater than your love and we can't come back, Lord. So just invite us to yourself, continue to save us. And... Uh, be a good dad. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians, again, this church in ministry, getting persecuted, seeming to have this lack of joy. And we got to the point where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we talked about the salvation, whose responsibility that what part do we have in that? He calls us to repent. We have a part in that. And again, repentance means, as we talked about, just to change your mind. And to change your mind, when you repent, your faith is your actions of how you live your life after changing your mind. Right? 
Hebrews 11 is, is, is a list of things that people did. What they did didn't make them right with God. It was a result of what God did in them, and that's the proof that they actually believe differently. You wouldn't leave your city and go walking somewhere because God told you to if you didn't actually believe that it was there and that you were willing to trust him. That a, a leaving represented that. When you are doing something wrong and you repent, there will be an action correlated with what you think. But you're not going to do it if you don't think it's true and if you think it matters. As a... Uh, Pastor Joe always says that the, the mind will always make a convert of the heart. If you think it, you'll believe it eventually. What do, we, what do we believe? What do we believe to be true? We need to believe Jesus and his word. And uh, looking at the salvation, we've come to the conclusion that we know, right, there's two destinations. Right, I mentioned that last week. Believers end up where? With Jesus. In heaven. Heaven is the abode of God. Unbelievers, they may go to hell, Hell is a holding place. It's like, it's like a county court or the county uh, jail. That's only where they're going until the judgment, where the lake of fire is the destination. So there's two destinations. Everyone will either be for eternity with God or separated from God. In heaven, where he lives, or in the lake of fire, separated from him. And we came and we read and we know there's only one means of salvation, and that's Jesus. There is only one way to avoid that. We get saved from the lake of fire by believing the gospel. It tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that God desires all to be saved and gave himself a ransom for all. And God so loved the world, everybody, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Everybody could be saved. God wants everybody to be saved. There is only one way of getting saved, and he died for everybody. This justification, saved from the penalty of sin, then who gets saved? Right? Revelation 20 says, all those not in the book of life are cast in the lake of fire. Revelation 21 says, those who are in the book of life enter into heaven. So it seems like the requirement is, are you in the book of life? That's the question. You can know that you're saved. You can know that your name is written in that book. You can see fruit evidence in other people's lives. I, you can't know that anyone else is saved. Only you know what goes on in your heart. Only you know if you've been invaded by God himself and that he has a relationship with you. And it's designed that way. That's why it says do not judge. But he's not saying don't judge because he says be fruit inspectors. He said you'll know a, fruit by, a tree by its fruit. So you're right to look at people, but you don't know if they've been saved or will get saved. You should know if you're saved. Are you in the book of life? And saved, you repent. You change your mind, you believe in the gospel. So you were unbelieving before, you become to believe it. Romans 3.10, we read through Romans. Romans 3.10 to 18 says, Nobody earned or even desired salvation. There's none that seek after me. Rob read that this morning. A lot of what we've had heard, I'm going to speak tonight, is being repeated. God's okay with repeating stuff. Maybe it's just for me. I'm really slow. I'm sure we're, all, we're like men of like passion. I'm sure we're all slow. Sometimes we, don't under, we understand something. Sometimes I'm sitting there reading, I'm like, that's not what I believe, and I think of something that I thought was Scripture, and I can't find it. Sometimes there's things that get in our head, that's, that's, and he's got he's to wash you. He's, the Word, he's got to correct it. He's very patient. Nobody's earned it. Romans three nineteen to 26 says, Righteousness comes free to us by faith in Christ to all who believe the gospel. It says that in uh, Ephesians 2. We read that last week also. So those saved are in the book of life. The unsaved are not. 
Now the question you might have is, what do I have to do in order to get into this book of life? How much is enough? What do I do? And I think when we say that, it's the wrong question, and it gives an implication. Right? Good master, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What good thing must I do? Jesus just said, what good thing must you do? He said, there's none good. No, not one. It's not about, are you good enough? And that just hit me one time I was teaching. It's, it's kind of funny. If you teach in a certain way, you can imply things by the question. You see it in the news and reporters all the time, especially in politics. Right? I asked the Sunday school kids when I was teaching before. I've mentioned it up here before also. But I'll say, we're sitting in the room. I said, who can see their house from here? Oh, there's walls. Okay, if you go out in the parking lot, can you see your house? They're like, no, it's too far away. And then I'll ask them a question. How far can you see? How far can you see? Can you see three miles? No, that's really far. If you're into shooting targets, you can't even see the target at 400 yards, much less see the bullseye. You need help. You can't see that far. How far can you see then? I don't know. Can you see the moon? How far away is the moon? Well, I guess I can see that far. It was a loaded question. And actually, it's a false question because do eyes go out and see anything? All they do is receive light. The question should be is how far can light travel? But by asking the question a certain way, you're implicating something that is your responsibility to see and that your eyes go out and, and maybe you can see that far and maybe you can't. The question is, is are you willing to can you receive what's coming to you? Blind people, they, they can't see it. Certain colors reflect off of it. Light is amazing. It acts like a particle. It acts as a wave. It can act like one or the other. We don't even understand light. Light's pretty basic. We're not that smart. God is light, so it, gets this, it is confusing. But we sit here and we delve into things like getting saved and we don't even understand sometimes simple questions. The question shouldn't be, how do I get in this book? And to explain my, question, my answer there, I think is encouraging. If you turn with me to Revelation 3. Which, this might be something everybody already knows, but it's encouraging to me, so hopefully this will be encouraging to you too. To the church at Sardis. Let's read... Uh, first six verses. And to the angel in the church at Sardis write, this is Jesus dictating to John, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and has and the seven stars, I know that you I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And again, what is we read that last time. What is the work that you believe on him who, who God has sent? Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So Sardis, they have a name that they're alive. Like I said, nobody can know. Jesus knows. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You have no life in you. Who is life? Jesus. He says, you need to repent. Some of you are bound to get a white robe, a picture of righteousness. They don't have that. So this is my estimation, are people that are unsaved that he's writing to, that you haven't gotten to the point where you can't be saved, and I'm calling out to you. They're already dead. They need to repent. If they overcome, they'll get white garments, and if not, they will be blotted out from the book. They're not saved, but they're already in the book. He says, you don't have to figure out how to get your name in the book. Just don't do something that will get your name removed from the book. And I think this is a process, much scripture on this book of life. I think Jesus died for the world. Everybody that was ever created, God has a purpose and a plan for and has something that he wants them to do. We don't have to talk God into it. He wants to do it. We shouldn't be surprised that he knows your name, that he cares about you personally. He knows where you live, when you were going to be born, what he wants you to do while you're here. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to walk with him. He wants to fill you with his spirit. We don't have to say, I blew it. Please, 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 please. He's sitting there waiting. If we call out to him, it's only because he encouraged us to call out to him. He initiates and starts everything. He has you in the book. Can your name be blotted out from the book? Does that mean that you were saved and you lost your salvation? Or does that mean that you were already in it? Well, turn to Exodus 32, please. We'll start in verse 30. Exodus 32, verse 30. We'll read five verses. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is while they were, Moses was up on the mountain, Joshua halfway up the mountain, the people down below complaining, whining, giving their gold, Aaron just happened to throw gold into a fire and a calf came out, a miracle, <laughs> or so he said. And Moses comes back. Then Moses, 31, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Ah, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf and with Aaron. And we can also read about people's names getting blotted out. Usually it's a request for the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God's people, that as they're praying, they say, please blot their names out. They're in there. They have issues. In Nehemiah 4, Psalm 69, 28, Psalm 109, 13, 14, it all speaks about these times where the requests made for the ungodly to be removed from this book of life. If 
you turn to Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And then if you go to verse 22, well, 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. They have been redeemed, which means that their sins have been blotted out. So there's this whole doctrine of blotting. Doctrine, Mark blotting. Either, either your sins are going to be blotted out or your name is going to be blotted out. There is something there that is going to represent you and we'll look at it. There's actually a book with your name on it. And everything that you did in it, or everything that you were supposed to do is in it, and everything that you did is in it, the books, and everything that you did for him is going to remain and everything that you did in the flesh is going to be blotted out. And some people, the book's gone, and their names are blotted out because there's nothing left. Right? We read about that in the Bema seat. Some people will be saved as if by fire. The only thing that's in there is the day they got saved. But they were saved. Isaiah 42, something's going to be blotted out. They weren't sinless, but their sins were blotted out. What blots out our sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. So Romans, flip to Romans, please. It would be hard if you wanted to just teach on, you could teach the whole book of Isaiah and not leave it, or the book of Romans and not leave it. Romans 2, and let's see, verse 29, it says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So we're... Here, Paul is dealing with this picture of circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh, just like when they were called to get circumcised. In the book of Joshua, when they went through, they kept on going back to Gilgal. It's always a good place to go back to. Gilgal means a cutting away. That's where they got circumcised. And every time they would gather or, or seek the Lord or reunite, they would go back to Gilgal, the circumcision. And again, it's just a sign and uh, again, I read much of Romans 3 last week, and it talks about Abraham was saved by faith, and that circumcision was a sign of the faith. And then it goes through this whole, this whole detailed oracle. Was he saved? Did he have faith because he was circumcised? No, circumcision came after he had faith. He believed God, and that was accounted to him under righteousness, and then he had him get circumcised. And the circumcision was a symbol or a representative of something that already happened inside his heart. So too with us. 
And then it says that we are in him. Whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, you are in that faith of what he believed in. You can read in Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So this whole thing about not having sin imputed. And the word impute means to pass to one's account or to calculate. It's not given on your account. In the same chapter, if you would look at starting at verse 19. And not being weak in the faith, speaking of Abraham walking, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. If you believe as Abraham believed, you will be considered righteous just as Abraham was considered righteous, and you also will have this sign. And we see circumcision was a sign. It wasn't the thing that saved as baptism is good for us to consider that, but the seal that we get marked with is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit on you is your guarantee into heaven. Whatever you need to do to get that to happen needs to happen. You don't have to fight with God to get that to happen. You were already in the book. It's something he initiated and started. It's something he wants to do. Turn with me to John, please, chapter 14. First seven verses. Let not your heart be troubled. It's kind of, you ever heard anybody say, don't worry, be happy. Well, Jesus creates by speaking, so he can say, Don't worry about it, because if you're walking with him and the only thing you care about is being right with him, if he tells you it's okay, it's okay. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Rob spent a good deal of time this morning explaining that to us. I'd just like to make a reference in 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, the honest one of the bunch, We don't know where you're going. And that word, we don't know where you're going, 
He's being real. And that word no in the Greek is actually edo. And it implies to figure out as though seeing or perceiving. I don't understand in my flesh. I'm listening to you, but I'm not getting what you're saying. I can't figure it out. And Christianity isn't all about figuring it out. He wants us to be able to understand the word. But he says there's things that you cannot know. I'm going to tell you, are you going to believe me? It's a, it's a religion of faith. It's a walk of faith. You can't know some things. How long are you going to live? You can't know. Why were you, why were you born in this era? Why weren't you born when Jesus was here? I don't know. Why were you born with the color of skin? I don't know. Why were you born on this continent? I don't know. Sometimes why do you believe what you believe? You're a circumstance of your surroundings. Now the question is, is what are you going to do with what my word says to you? That's all that really matters. He says, you know what? We don't know where you're going. We need help. And in 14.7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. We don't know you. If you would have known me, there was an opportunity to know him. And that word know is gnosko in the Greek. It's a different word. We, we know it because it means to experience in a real way. It's, it's the same word. And he knew her. A, a husband and a wife having a child. It's an intimate relationship. The two shall become one flesh. How does God put it? Me and you and you and me. Marriage is a relationship that's designed for us to know him. Everything is designed for us to know him. All your physical appetites were given to you so that you can know a spiritual truth. Not, if you walk by faith, there's nothing that's a coincidence. You have a desire. The desire is not bad. The question is, what are you going to do with that desire? Are you going to honor God with it? Or are you going to use it for yourself? The fact that we need air, he is the breath of life. The fact that we get hungry, he could have made us not need food. He is the bread of life. The fact that you need water. Every, everything that you have is designed to teach you something spiritually. So if you have a, a sexual desire, why, well, why can't I be with a certain a man or a woman? Why does God care? Because it doesn't represent the picture God had pictured for us. Because it's not about your personal satisfaction. It's about a spiritual truth. What God says matters. He means what he says. He says what he means. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. Is what you're doing with your life about him? If you had known me, if you were intimate with me, if you love me, you'll understand these things, and you'll also know my Father. Same chapter, verse 15. Again, he hasn't died. This is still the Old Testament. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A promise. The Holy Spirit will be with you, and he will be in you. When did he come inside of them, right? You know, in John 20, 20, it says he breathed on them after he rose from the dead, after the covenant was established. And he breathed on them and said, receive ye the spirit. They became born again at that moment. He will be, he is with you. And what's that word with? Para, right? We talked about that in the beginning of Philippians, the paracletus, the one that walks beside you. He walks beside everybody. Doing what? 
and we'll talk about that. He eventually will come inside of you. Rob mentioned that, right? John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the privilege, the honor, the power, the authority to become children of God who believe in his name, who were born of the Spirit. You become born of God. You become his child. Everyone's like, well, you can't judge him. He's a child of God. We're all children of God. Are we? Is that what the Bible teaches? It seems that way. We're all created in his image. Well, we were created in his image, which is why you can have a conscience, which is why you can know right and wrong. Where do you get your definition of right and wrong? If it's not from him, you have to come up with it yourself. You are without excuse, Romans 1 says, because you know, because of your conscience. You can have your conscience seared, just like Rob thoroughly explained this morning. But you're not his child until you become born of him. Adam was created in God's image. Adam died spiritually. Adam had children after his likeness. We were created in the image of Adam. That's why the Bible says our first, the first man was Adam, the last man is Christ. You, have, you were born human. You need to be born spiritually. You need to be born again. That's what it means. We don't have to convince him of it. Jesus says when he comes, he will be with you. And talking to his apostles, he said he will be in you. And we can read in Acts 1.8, it says that he will come upon you. He fulfilled it on Pentecost. All of these things were fulfilled. These feasts were pointing to something. God wanted us to know. He wrote it down in a book, and he told them to celebrate it every year. In fact, he got them to go to Jerusalem three times a year because he wanted them to understand specific things. One of them was Jesus dying on the cross. One of them is Jesus rising from the dead. One of them was the Holy Spirit was going to come upon the church. These are things that they wanted them there for because they came to there. They were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out because he told them to come. He wanted them to see something. So he comes besides everybody. I've never heard God talk to me. Okay. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. What about people that never heard the gospel? Um, let's turn to Matthew 12. Starting in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Well, we know it won't. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first... He first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. 
He who is not with me is against me. 31, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. That's worth repeating. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. You can repeat that a hundred times. <laughs> every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. If you would turn with me back to John 16, please. One sin, Jesus said, every sin will be forgiven except for one sin. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? We should know what it is because we don't want to do it. And I can tell you here, if you're here and you care, you haven't. Start in verse 5. Jesus speaking, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. No joy. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Has Jesus departed? Yes. Then has he sent the Holy Spirit? Yes. Or he's a liar. Eight. And when he has come, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is going to come and tell everybody that Jesus has forgiven all their sins and that he is the only way to the Father. And if you reject that, then there's no hope. I tell people that all the time. You're not going to go to hell because you're sick. Everybody was born sick. God understood that. That's not a problem. It's not your fault even. The problem is, is you're rejecting the cure. He told you you're sick. He has the cure, and he offers it to you freely. What are, you, are you willing to take it? Are you willing to receive it? There's a cost to it, so people sometimes think they don't want to walk with it. But there is a cost. Jesus died for all to be saved. He covered all sin. Blasphemy or slander... Blasphemy is either slander or reproachful speak. We were all born in Adam's likeness, leading spiritual death. Jesus' death paid for all the sin, and it's all written. It's in a book. The Spirit comes to everybody convicting all of sin or unbelief. If you reject the Spirit, you blaspheme him, and you are blotted out of the book. I believe everybody is in that book of life until the moment you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and then your name is blotted out. Unfortunately, it doesn't take one sin or a hundred sins or a million sins because I knew Jesus was real when I was a teenager and I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to repent. I didn't want to give up my sin. I didn't get saved till I was 35. Thank God he didn't give up on me. So either your sins or your name will be blotted out. It's not about what we do to get in the book of life. It's what you do to disqualify yourself. And I think it goes beyond that, which is where hopefully this will lead us into 
the Philippian church. Do you know God has a plan for you? Do you have a purpose? Is there anybody in here that was a mistake? I was a fifth child. My parents, I don't know why, but they told me, we weren't expecting to have you, but we love you. I didn't know you weren't expecting to have me, because unless you, you had to tell me, but God didn't make any mistakes. We have earthly parents, and sometimes we don't know what's going on. Life is a miracle. Everything's a miracle. We were talking about that earlier at the end of church today. The fact that there's the same amount, the right amount of oxygen. I mean, there's nothing that's not a miracle. It, it's insane to think that this all just happened by chance. Everything is a miracle. You are here on purpose. If you have life, it's because God put you somewhere. It tells us in Psalm 139, David wrote, right, the great book on omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. And David wrote saying that before I was formed in my mother's womb, you had known me. He knew you before you were created in your mother's womb. And he had fashioned your days for you when there was yet none, and he wrote them in a book. There is a book that has everything that God had planned for you to do in your life, why he created you. You have purpose, preordained from before you were even thought of. That can be encouraging or that can be scary. And the next question should be, what's in my book? Well, you can't figure it out. You can't think through it. You can decide what you might want there to be in there. That's our walk with God. That's where we walk. To me, this is my simple mind, but this is how it makes sense to me. Because it tells us in Revelation, right, 20, 21, at the end, it says that the book was opened and the books. So there's a book of life. And then all of the unbelievers, the acts that they did, it says that the books were open. We assume that that is this book of all that they did. What does sin mean? The word sin means you missed the mark. Well, what were you supposed to be aiming for? Right? Well, it makes sense to me then if there's a book of, uh, let's just call it a to-do list. If this is a to-do list of what I'm supposed to do in my life, and here is a to-do list of everything that I was supposed, that I actually did do, anything that's on this list that I was supposed to do that's not on the list that I actually did do is sin. Everything that I did missed. What did I do that was on my list? Jesus said, if you worship me, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. Everything that you do is supposed to be an act of worship through the spirit for God's glory. If you're not saved and the Holy Spirit is not in you, what spiritual thing for God's glory have you ever done? I've, had, I've been out with people saying, well, I haven't sinned that much. And I'm I said, well, according to the Bible, you've never not sinned. When have you ever done anything spiritually for God's glory? I've mentioned this before, too. One time somebody was telling me, you know the reason why I don't want to be a Christian? I'm like, no, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. And he did. He said, you're going to tell me if there's this guy and he wasn't a Christian and he lived his life giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, doing all these great things, but he never became born again. He's going to die and go to hell. And this other guy who murdered and killed and stole, and he's getting sentenced to the electric chair, and on his deathbed he cries out, God help me, and he becomes born again. He's going to heaven, and the other guy's not. And I was like, okay, the thing that's wrong there is you're looking at this other guy that did all these things, and you're thinking that they're worthy or good, his own righteousness. 
He was trying to do good apart from God. He was, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. His whole life was trying to prove God a liar. He was spitting in the face of God saying, I don't need you. And the other guy wasn't much better. At least he did one thing right. <laughs> He's not, neither of them were very good. One got in by the skin of his teeth, whatever his teeth they have, even skin, I don't know. But <laughs> he did one thing that gave God glory. And God's like, you know what? You have to crawl over my dead body to go to hell. I don't want you to go there. I did everything. I put you there. I created you for a reason. I want you there. I'll give you everything that you need. You can't know what's in that book. So now, as a Christian, our goal should be, is, Lord, what, what, do you, what, do you, what will you do with me? What do, why did you create me? What's my purpose? What do you want to do? And we, we've come to this conclusion that we were created by him and we can't do anything without his spirit, that our sins are covered in Christ, and that now all of a sudden we have this starting point, and I can actually serve him. He's got to show me what my calling and my will, his will is for my life, and I've been freed now that I actually can do it. If you just flip with me to Acts 3. We'll start in verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed, and we know that they were walking and on the way in, the guy's given alms, and we know the story. The lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our, our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know." Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, has been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." Repent and believe, and your sins can be blotted out. You can have a new beginning. You can have all of the things that you've done up into your life up to this point washed away in the blood. And you know what the good news is? Is that when, how often can you repent? Some people think of repent as a four-letter word. Oh, man, he's preaching repentance. Repentance is great. You know what is grace? Everyone likes grace. You know what grace is? Yeah, grace is the thing that takes away all of your excuses to ever start right now. <laughs> Some people like to pout. I like to pout. Sometimes I like to say, well, I blew it. A guy can't do with me. Or I don't feel saved. I don't feel like I'm doing good. God's like, I have grace. Stop thinking about yourself. Think about me. Right now, it's available to you to start over. You have no excuses not to walk with me right now. Grace takes away all of our excuses. Grace is awesome, but it's not easy. You can, 
pick yourself up by your, I'm going to come up with all these stupid things. So, <laughs> skin your teeth. So, salvation is a process. Justification, sanctification, glorification, justification, you're not blotted out of the, of the book of life and your sins have been blotted out. All of those things in the book that is your life, which I don't know why, I think it's recorded in light. You know, ever, some people die, they say, oh, I see the, my life flash before my eyes. So, it's, a, it's just a personal opinion, but I think it's going to be a video. They call it a book. They didn't have videos back then. And I think it's going to be in light. And if you travel fast enough, you go backwards in time. I think everything that you did is there. Everything you were supposed to do was there. Everything you did was here. And I think the unsaved are going to see everything that they did that was wrong. They're going to see Jesus dying for every one of those sins. None of them will be condemned for what they did because Jesus forgave them for it. Then they're going to see the moment the Holy Spirit told them, this is available to you, and they're going to be condemned for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You would not receive what he did for you. Jesus himself said every sin will be forgiven. But if you reject the cure, that's what you're going to go down for. You don't want me, I will give you what you want. Pastor Billy used to say that here before when he was not walking with the Lord. He said, What's, if you don't want to spend time with Jesus right now, what makes you think you're going to want to spend eternity with him? Spend time with him. There's nothing better on earth than what's in heaven. If Jesus in heaven is the best thing that's there, and you can have him now, what is worth more of your time, energy, or effort than him here right now? You can have Jesus right now through the presence of his spirit, have this awesome relationship with him. And sometimes it's hard. And we get to Philippians Two, and again, I'll just read through it. I believe what the issue was. Paul saying, work out this salvation. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And work out is something that they're called to do. Calculate, come to a logical end. If God put this in me, then I should. So with all of that being said, knowing that God has a plan in your, for your life, he had it written before the foundations of the earth, you're here for a reason. You begin when you get saved. Salvation's the starting line. You were always there. He's always had the book. Everything up to your life at this point so far has not been worship of God in spirit, and it's under the blood, right? Behold, all things are made new. I start over today, and you can say that every morning. And you can start out by dying to self, like Paul says. I die daily. Once I die to myself, the next question is, is if I'm not doing this for me, what am I doing for him? 
What has God put in you? Work out your salvation. What has God put in you? God has put something in you. We don't have to twist his arm. We don't have to talk him into it. He told you that he did. Now the question is what? He put in you something to fulfill what he created you for. You have a purpose. You have a plan. You have gifts. Right? The Holy Spirit's in you. All of the gifts are spiritual gifts. Jesus had all of them. But he only exercises certain of them through individuals. Some have more than one, but everybody has at least one. What has God put in you? We're not all identical twins, but we're all equal in value. We're all invited to Jesus. We're all being conformed into the image of his son. We're all going to be able to spend eternity with him in heaven. However, each has been given varying gifts. We each have a specific ministry and we each have been called to a specific body of believers. There's differences. So we're all equal, but we're all walking differently. Right? Paul mentions it like body parts. A body is a body. A finger doesn't do what a toe does, doesn't do what a belly button does, doesn't do what a heart does. But they're all equal, they're all important, and they all have a different function. And if something in the body isn't working, it's not a healthy body. So the body needs all of us and we all intermingle and we all do something. Find out what your purpose is. God has a purpose for you. He determined it before you were born. First was to be saved, then sanctified, then glorified. Sanctification includes serving him. Part of how you work out your salvation and are being saved, it's because of what you're not doing and what you're doing. You need to be doing what God wants you to do. If you have the ability by God to do something and you're doing something else, well, first of all, you didn't hear from him or you ignored him. And second of all, he's not given you the strength to do something he hasn't called you to. Now you're doing it in your, own, in your own strength, which means you're getting tired, you're getting weary, and you're getting frustrated. And you also are now dependent upon it being effective. If God called you to something, he's the one that decided. You have to ask him for him to tell you. You can't just think and figure it out. Once he tells you, then you can't do it. He has to be the one that empowers you to accomplish what he's called you to do. And the next thing that happens is if he's called you to, let's just say, teach, well, people aren't going to learn unless he goes before you, even if you do it right. It won't have an effect unless he does it. All of those are his responsibilities. It's freeing. What are you called? You're just called to be faithful. I'm just called to be faithful. It's not your response. If God tells you to go out and preach, it's not your fault if nobody gets saved. Just do what he said. Jeremiah had little converts. He can even use you if your heart's wrong, but now he's going to work with you, right? I just got done reading Jonah. I thought I was going to be spending a lot of tonight in Jonah, but I don't have time for it. Jonah did what God said, but his heart was wrong. And, and like the whole city got saved. Like probably maybe the largest conversion that we see in the Bible, in history maybe. But he knew what God wanted him to do. <laughs> he just tried to run from it. He had no joy because he didn't like what God was telling him to do. His heart wasn't right. Was Jonah prideful? I remember thinking that for years, and I heard a pastor one time teaching it that Jonah was probably the humblest prophet in the Bible, thinking, what? Then he said, who wrote the book of Jonah? He wrote that about himself. <laughs> he was deadly honest. He understood 
what happened, and he was not willing, or he was, he was willing to share that with everybody so that we can learn from it. He didn't say anything good about himself. He just gave God all the glory. And he was honest. So on, sometimes we'll find that ministry has disappointments or misconceptions, misperceptions, confusion. God will call you, and there'll, there'll be resistance. And sometimes you think, oh, there's resistance. It must not be God. Or it's resistance, it's the enemy. Sometimes it's just the way things happen. Paul is explaining to them, you're going through difficult, but it's okay. God will get, God be the glory. He's working in you through that. And to them, that's how they know that they're not right with me. It's okay that it's hard. God says it's okay that it's hard. They were in God's will, but they didn't have joy. Maybe they thought persecution was God's disapproval. Maybe they were losing heart and just needed encouragement. But he tells them, God's working. Don't give up. He will finish what he started. God has begun a work in you, and he will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. And if we get nothing else out of that, find out what God's called you to do. First of all, if you're not saved, get saved. You've done nothing that's worthy of heaven. If you get saved, the next step is, as the Apostle Paul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Now, okay, I'm saved. Now what? I have zeal. He had it not according to knowledge. Now he has zeal and he wants knowledge. What is my calling? Tell me what you want me to do. I'm a doer. He also said he's the chief of all sinners, which you can know your own heart. You should be saying that about yourself. Because I think, I know what's in my heart. I don't know what's in your heart. So I know I'm as bad as anybody ever could be. Well, Father, we just thank you that we're not unknown to you. We weren't a surprise to you. And you're not sitting there tapping your finger and wondering what to do with us, Lord. You're just patiently waiting for us to fall in line with what you want to do. Lord, we know that you saved us from before the foundations of the earth. You had a plan, and you're a good God. And we know that you've never lied to us. There's nothing like being in your presence, and your presence is the fullness of joy. When we go out and seek to find out what it is that you've done. We just pray that you would be patient with us, that you would speak to us in your word, that we might know that that is what you've called us to. It's not just something we think. Um, but we thank you that uh, you said not to despise the day of small beginnings. You, you, you love it when your children are growing and learning and walking. And help us to not get frustrated and turn back, Lord. Fill us with joy. Help us to not go out alone, but to go with you. And uh, send your spirit, fill us afresh tonight, Lord, that we might just know that you're here and that you care and that what we're doing is in, in vain. Thank you that you loved us and died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.